frankly, I just want to do the right thing. And it's actually very easy to do the right thing when it comes to investing, and that's keep your costs low. You are listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Thanks, Charlie. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to John Luskin of Define Financial. John has a great story, but what I love the most about his story is how he saw a need and just did something about it. John has published a paper and has submitted a second because of a Twitter exchange. John's passion around investments and research is contagious, and I'm excited for you to hear his story. So let's jump right in. Well, thanks for joining us today, John. Of course. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, we're so excited to have you. So can you tell the listeners, how did you get into financial planning? Wow, that's a great question. So I was in a previous sector and I was in the nonprofit sector because I wanted to do the right thing and work for a good cause and just generally be a good person. So I did that for a few years and a couple things. First thing, I didn't find that the organizations I was working with were as impactful as I would have liked. And the work itself wasn't super interesting. So I had always dabbled with investments. I had an investment account and pretty much made all the wrong moves you were supposed to make. So I can cross that off my list having done that. And I wanted to learn more about it. So partway into my nonprofit venture, I took a master's program in nonprofit management. And as a way to segue my interest in investing and my requirements for the program, I ended up doing my thesis on endowments and how they invest their money. And that got me really, really excited about investing. So I looked at that path and I explored what options there were. I was looking at the CFP versus the CFA route. And ultimately, I decided... At the end of this, the CFP skill set was more broad and would be simply valuable personally. So I chose that. And with the CFP coursework in progress and the MBA thesis on investing under my belt, I was able to land my first gig at a fee-only RIA in San Diego. So when you got your job at at the fee-only RIA, were you like, yes, this is what planning is? Or like, what was your, I guess, maybe expectations versus reality in that first role? Sure. The planning part was pretty awesome, in part because I was able to lead a lot of it. Um, They put me in on client meetings on pretty much day one, and I sat there and took notes and then ran with everything that I took out of the CFP program, ran it by the principal of the firm. He gave a few notes. And then that was essentially the you know, 20 plus page memo we would present to the client on you know, where they were, what best practices, what best practice was for that particular area of financial planning, and then their to do in that area. So that was that was pretty cool. I was able to learn a lot, I was able to practice a lot. Ultimately, I wish there were more clients. There weren't a lot of clients coming in the door every day for me to 
practice that skill set, but it was a, a pretty awesome experience in terms of practicing financial planning. So you were really given free reign starting from day one. Is that what it? Is that what I'm hearing? It it was pretty close. I was I was surprised and, and excited. I was able to do and contribute so much. I think part of it just came from the fact that I am very much a you know, book nerd type. So if someone gave me a scenario, I would look everything up and just wax financial planning about what the possibilities were in that in that area. So that was uh, it worked well, and I enjoyed it. And ultimately, the principals were, were happy with the final product. You know, for people looking for jobs right now, was there anything in the job description that really made you know that you were going to get that almost free reign or the experience that you got? I, I didn't. And one thing that I've learned over and over again in this sector especially is that you will pretty much have absolutely no idea what your day-to-day -day is going to be like based on a job interview or the classified ad that they put out. It's always going to be completely different. While financial planning at the first firm I was at was a pretty awesome opportunity, it was a different scenario for investing and with my background in my, you know my knowledge essentially of what i'd learned in my thesis on investing i thought the firm would be more closely aligned to academic results but that that wasn't the case and that was the impression i got during the interview so during the interview essentially i said here's how i approach investing and their response was oh yeah that's how we do it too so i was really excited about that and then I started working there and learned there was, there was quite some disconnect. But then there was this amazing financial planning opportunity that really wasn't touched on during any of the interview process. So that's so funny. So from your perspective, they were doing the financial planning right and the investments maybe were a little bit off. That, that would be just one man's opinion. <laughs> so how long were you at uh, that first firm for? I was there for a year and a quarter. And I left there for an opportunity at another firm where I was given the chance to manage client portfolios. And I was super excited about this because I felt that I had a very strong basis on what the right thing is to put the client in, effectively low-cost index funds. And I wasn't getting that opportunity at the first firm. And the interview at the second firm made the offer, you can work on these client portfolios, you'll have free reign. So I was super excited about that, took that opportunity, only later to find out that was not the case at all. So it's something I would caution those folks that are out there that are looking for their first gig is that the interview and the and the and the ad are going to be very distinct from what the actual day to day is and i would add that that's okay because maybe it's going to be what you're looking for maybe not but it's certainly not the only firm out there there will be others yeah i was going to say that's not overly encouraging 
<laughs> but the reality is, is that we're, there's very, very few people. Their first job is the one that they're there for five or even 10 years. I, I would say that it varies. It just depends on the person. For someone like myself, you know, I'm at the fourth firm since my inception in the field. And so it took me a while to find a place where I could really do what I'm good at and effectively, you know, blossom, if you will. But there are other planners my age who I network with and they're at the firm today going through an equity deal and it was the same firm that they interned at right out of college so it's certainly a mixed bag out there in terms of opportunities you know it just boils down to what you're told the opportunity is versus what you're actually going to get to do will be different and again my takeaway is that's okay because you will find something eventually that does match your skill set and that you will be able to thrive in. Okay, so tell us about your current firm. How did you find it? So I met Taylor at a FPA event and we chatted a little bit. I was really curious about what he did branching off on his own, opening his own firm. It was something that I had seriously considered myself after going to several firms and just not not getting what I signed up for. So we worked together a little a little bit on some smaller projects and then eventually I determined, you know, this guy's is someone that I would like to work more with and then we put together a deal that had me come on on a more active basis regularly. So now are you working on his clients? Do you guys have your own clients? Are they joint? How, do, how does that work? It's it's both. So I came on and I'm certainly helping him with, with his financial planning. Um, and to my own great satisfaction, once I came on board, I was able to develop model portfolios for the firm using low-cost funds, which I'm extremely excited and, and obviously passionate about. And then I'm bringing on my own clients as well. Now, having worked as a supporting role in previous firms, marketing is something new for me. So I'm certainly learning a lot about that at the moment. If somebody was to look you up, they're going to find UncleDMoney.com. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what this is and how did you how did you get started doing that, or like what inspired that? Sure. So I've listened to countless XY planning podcasts and Alan Moore and Michael Kitsis have drilled into me that I need to have a niche. So Uncle D Money is my current niche initiative and it is targeted at employees of the big four. Uncle D being a nickname for one of the big four. So I talk about some of their benefits, the, the, their workplace benefits how to take advantage of them with, in respect to having a comprehensive financial plan. So how long have you been doing the blog? Gosh, maybe a little bit over a year. Okay. And have you seen success with it? I mean, have you been getting clients from it or kind of what's been your experience? 
it's it's certainly it hasn't been the success that I would imagine it it would be. I had a challenge, a big challenge earlier in the year when I had to remove the name of one of the big four from <laughs> from the blog itself because I I caught the attention of that particular big four member, and that murdered my my SEO rankings. Whereas before, if you put in X firm's name and 401k. I was, you know, right up there on the top of the fold. So I think that's, that may have, I would imagine that's, that's hurt me since then. Um, I've used the blog in conjunction with some other marketing initiatives with a Facebook ad pointing to the blog and, and a drip campaign and, and a lead magnet all revolving around the blog. Let's talk about your passion for investing. Cause I don't know that I hear a lot of, I don't feel like that's the most common thing that I hear. Can you go into more about why you care so much about investing? Well, I think it just goes back to the fact and the reason why I spent years in the nonprofit sector is because, frankly, I just want to do the right thing. And it's actually very easy to do the right thing when it comes to investing, and that's keep your costs low. But for you know, a myriad amount of reasons advisors and retail investors don't do and or understand that it's it's very simple it's very easy it's very elegant but a lot of people miss that maybe this is a bad question but why do you think that they miss it i mean once you're kind of in that space it seems so obvious sure uh, and I, and i agree if if you read any research if you read any paper that actually looks at the numbers from an objective stance the odds are clear. Yes, while there is a small chance that you could outperform marginally by using higher cost funds, the numbers favor using low cost by a very, very wide margin. So the reason why people miss that can be for a number of reasons. Firstly, they don't read the research. Now, Reading the research, depending upon who you ask, can be a boring and dry task. So they don't want to do it. It's a lot more fun to say stuff like, I believe in, in Jeff Bezos, or Watson is going to change the world, or people are drinking more bottled water, and having that as your investment thesis than saying... And again, it's it's a lot more sexy and a lot more marketable to say those things than fees are fees are all that matter. Keep your costs low, buy and hold, and forget about it. So you kind of lose like that marketing. Absolutely. Pizzazz. I at one of the firms I worked at, I, I won't say which one it is. I had a pretty. I talked about index investing a lot, in part because the firm took quite the opposite approach, which was the more fees, the more funds, the more complex we can make this, the more it's going to be marketable. And because I brought up indexing so much, I wasn't a very popular guy there. Well, and I think it also goes back to this idea of if we make it complicated, Advisors therefore believe that their cl our clients now need us. When it's like, wait a minute, what do our clients really need us for? Sure. And, and I think it's that different mind mindset. Um, 
So when you did your master's, you wrote your thesis, was that, obviously that was, I'm presuming, very heavy on the research base. Did you actually perform your own research in doing that? Yeah. So what I did is I did eight case studies on institutional endowments. And I looked at what they invested in and how they did over the time period where I could get data. And I said, okay, here's what the endowment did with their hedge funds and their private equity and their active managers and everything else. What if they had just invested in a low-cost, diversified array of index funds? And in eight of the case studies, the answer was obvious. Index funds not only outperformed giving the clients, or rather the endowments, more money, but there was less risk as well. And so did you just run this through various, like, I mean, I'm, I'm processing it through my filter. So like various planning softwares, or how did you kind of come, how did you run that research? Some of the endowments made their information publicly available. You could just go online and click a few links and get their annual report and see their returns going back the last 14 years. Some of them had a little bit of information online, and then I would say, hey, you know, thanks for putting up this five-year. Could I get a few more years of data from you? And, and some said yes, and some said no. A lot of them said no. And then one case study I had actually, it was from one of the instructors at the program that I was at. He ran a small nonprofit organization. They had an endowment, and he shared with me their data so you ran it basically just saying, like, if you had low-cost index funds, what would be the overall performance versus what the, what actually happened? Yeah, and for a good number of them, you know, UC Santa Barbara, for example, which I'm happy to say, because, again, this information is publicly available, it did really poorly. I mean, and at, given the size of the endowment, you know, we're talking millions of dollars that this foundation could have had had they just opted for low-cost funds. And that translates to scholarships and new buildings and, and everything else. So it's, it was uh, really unfortunate that a lot of these institutions are so enamored. And again, it's not just the institutions, it's individuals too, because obviously individuals make up the board of these organizations that are making these decisions. Uh, it's too bad that they choose the high-cost funds because in the end, cost is what matters. Let's apply this, you know, to a client situation because I'm very much in the same camp of, you know, low cost. I mean, just DFA funds, Vanguard funds um, with all my client portfolios. But the reality is the biggest expense to my clients is my fee. Of course. So what are your thoughts on advisor fees? That, that's an amazing question. And that's something we're experimenting with here at Define. And it's pretty interesting what we've come across so far. We've, we're trying a few different models. Some have been more successful th than others. I really, really like the flat retainer model. So you sign up for a monthly fee, you get ongoing financial planning, and that includes investment management. So whether you want investment management or not, doesn't matter because it's already part of your bill. And then there's a lot less conflicts of interest with that model than there are with the traditional AUM model, paying down debt, et cetera. So walk me through this. So when you're talking about this model for clients, can you give me like what type of client are you working with? It's it's going to vary. For example, 
we have a couple clients that are paying a monthly retainer and they're in their mid thirties. They're maxing out their 401ks, putting money, you know, maxing out their IRAs, putting some money into a taxable account, being really good savers. And then we have another individual. He's in his mid fifties. He's got a handful of rental properties. We're charging him a little bit more than we are the younger clients because his ongoing planning needs are more complex for that reason. But the same applies. The investment management that we do for him is included in his monthly fee. When I've heard advisors who talk about retainer models, so I think there's two different camps, right? So we have the people who are trying to service the next generation of investors. Um, and, and I'm hearing more of that monthly retainer model. But when we're looking at some of these more established firms who are used to that AUM model going to a retainer model, they're basing the retainer model on the revenue that the client has had generated in the past. So it'd be a million dollar portfolio, 1% is $10,000. They're starting out that retainer about $10,000. Sure. Is that kind of what you're thinking of or what kind of what are your thoughts on that? One thing that Taylor likes to say during client meetings is that we don't have an AUM minimum, but we have a fee minimum. So we've priced our retainer to equal the revenue that would come from the minimum AUM for the firm. Okay, so do you mind sharing what that fee minimum is? $3,000. Okay, so you have a $3,000 minimum. And then do you build it up? Like, do you factor into, like, the client's net worth? Or do you do it just purely based on complexity? Based on complexity, but usually they're one and the same. And so how do clients respond to this, kind of when you position this to them? We have a, a pretty decent close rate. I think perhaps 75% have taken us up on the, on the flat fee retainer model. Now, when you, char when you work with clients, are you charging them on a monthly basis? Are you pulling the retainer model or retainers out of their investment accounts? Or how, how are you kind of logistically operating that? Sure. If they're paying a monthly retainer, we just bill it monthly via credit card. And so one of my big questions is, do clients, how is the retention rate on that? It's a lot higher now since we've gotten better at pricing it. Initially, we had a very low monthly retainer. We were doing $100 a month with no initial financial planning fee. And then folks would sign up for that and then disappear. You know, we'd say, great, thanks for signing up. Here's what we need to do. Send us these documents and we'll start your financial plan. And we effectively never, never heard from them. The way we have it structured now is a client comes on board and they're going to pay a flat financial planning fee. Uh, maybe it's $3,500. Once they've paid that, we've cre created their financial plan for them. We've given them a list of to-dos, and they can either go off on their way, or they can pay us a monthly fee, and we'll help them cross off those to-dos, do investment management, and update their plan, and answer any other questions for them as they come up. So in my practice, I found that most of the all of, I don't know that I've had a client. I always give the option of you can do a financial plan and just walk away. But just, to, I can't think of an example where somebody did that. Everybody wants to sign up for the investment management on the back end of it. Sure. Is that kind of the same with what you've experienced? As I mentioned, the 
percent rate, I can think of at least one couple off the top of my head who came in for the financial plan and then that was all they were interested in. I have to say that I definitely saw that coming. These folks were early retiree folks. They were just shoveling money into their savings accounts. And I'm pretty sure the $3,000 a year fee was something they didn't want to spend. You you, heard, you saw the DIY investor <laughs> signals early on. I think it was more the fact that they were just very conscious of of their spending. They had a very, mm-hmm. very tight grip and understanding of it. So now let's And that's how they were able to save so much money. So one of the things I'm most interested about people with this, that, that model, especially that retainer and that monthly retainer model is after you do the financial plan, the, the initial financial plan for the client, do you have like a client calendar, like a client service model calendar, or how do you, I guess my concern would be showing value every single month for your services. Sure. And again, this is a new offering for us, so I can't, I don't have too much data for you. But I can tell you that our financial planning process, excluding the ongoing planning, culminates with a very, very long list of to-dos. Maybe those to-dos are lower your investment expenses. Maybe those to-dos are go buy an umbrella policy, go get a private disability policy because the one offered through work doesn't provide sufficient coverage. Maybe it's make sure that your trust reflects your new marriage and your new kids. So if right. they have that, then they can sign up for ongoing and we help them cross off all those to-dos. Now, of course, they're going to have other questions that come up even before we've crossed off all those to-dos. And, and that happens and they'll reach out and they'll have a question and we'll dig deep and run the numbers and get them the answer for them and then continue along all their other to-dos as well. What I think is so exciting um, just hearing you talk is that you guys are really like it sounds like you guys are really experimenting with service models mm-hmm. and almost on that cutting, I mean, really at that cutting edge of financial planning. So let me ask you kind of as you're in that space and as you're an idea person, I kind of with that, that visionary element, it sounds like, what do you see for the next five or 10 years for financial planning and how we deliver that service to clients? Man, that, that's an amazing question. I, I don't know, but one thing that I think about a lot is how technology is going to be leveraged that much more in financial planning. I sat, well, rather, we had a SoCal Summit for the Next Gen group a couple of years ago, and we had LearnVest there and, and Orange there, and Orange is sort of like a competitor to competitor to emx i'm not sure how else to describe it but he was talking about some of his offerings and how that works and i just thought about how much data entry financial planners do in terms of the value we add we you know punch data into the financial planning software and in the future the client's going to be doing a lot of that now i like to imagine that on a long timeline we're just going to get rid of the vi- advisor entirely and the client will just go directly to the software and the so- software will answer all their questions for them. And maybe that could be possible for simpler, lighter 
plans, but I think that's inevitable. That's really interesting. Yeah. Where, how is technology going to disrupt? And, you know, when you look at major industries that get disrupted, it's not necessarily the people inside that industry that disrupted. It's somebody outside the industry coming into it. Mm hmm. Uh, so if anybody's listening and wants to uh, <laughs> disrupt the industry, there's lots of room for it right now, I think. Yeah. So let me turn this over to Charlie. And see, he's been listening in and see if you have any questions or any thoughts that you want to add. I do have a question for John. It's more personal. Sure. So I've heard, I've heard you say more than once uh, in different ways that you were passionate about the low cost index funds. And when I looked at kind of your history, you know, like places that you worked and then kind of the timeline and everything, if I was a betting man, I would say that um, you like entered the workforce and then, you know, maybe had some income and started dabbling with with your personal account. You maybe made some mistakes. And then did you start reading and learning like the Bogleheads model and then got like super excited? Sure. So before I knew anything about investing, I would go on to my Schwab account and I would see what mutual fund had done the best over the quarter. And I'd sell the one that I had just bought and then buy the best performing one in the next quarter. I would be disappointed that it wasn't the best performing one and I'd sell it and then I'd I'd buy the next one and pay the short-term redemption fee. Uh, during the course of it, I would say, oh, hey, Netflix sounds cool and I would buy it and look at its price and look at it go up and down and then for no particular reason just decide to sell it. So I did that for a few years and then I started my thesis and I, and it was a very self-guided project. So I picked up all sorts of investing books. So I read Bogle, I read McHale, I read both of Swenson's books. Um, I read some other books that were not as great and not even worth mentioning. But after reading enough, I figured out cost matters. This is, this is so impactful. This is what makes the difference. And then I effectively tested that theory with my thesis. I took a bunch of high cost funds and strategies and compared them to what they could have had if they had just stuck with low cost funds. And it was consistent results across all eight case studies, better risk adjusted returns for the lower cost model. So after that experience, it was pretty clear to me that cost is the number one indicator of returns. I find it so interesting that you were really passionate about something and then just pursued that. And that's kind of what started opening doors for you. I think that's a really good, it's inspiring for me to hear um, that sometimes it's what are you naturally drawn to and just run with it. I, I couldn't agree more. I think about the other firms that I was at and my experiences there and, and the person I was as a result of, of working there. And then I contrast those with my experience here, and it's simply night and day. I remember at one firm I was at, I, had, I was working on the programming committee for the Financial Planning Association, and I helped bring Kitsis on to speak at the symposium, and it was fantastic, and he had a great talk, and I was really excited about it and speaking with the firm owner at the time. And, and his response was not to be equally excited about the value of Kitsis' work, 
but it was more along the lines of, you know, he doesn't own that much of his firm and you need to focus on generating revenue and, and not building a name for yourself in the industry. And that was something that I simply wasn't passionate about. And as a result, didn't go out and, and do just that. And then I think about another firm I was at where I wrote a little piece for Seeking Alpha. I was really excited about it because it had some pretty, you know, uh, extensive, well, not maybe extensive, but had some moderate number crunching in there and came to some pretty conclusive results. And the result of the firm I was at was not, hey, you know, great job getting your name out there, putting out research that people can get value from. Their takeaway was, oh, no, we can't, we can't do that because of compliance. You have to pull it. Now, I, I contrast that to, and then another firm I was at was just, you know, put your head in e-money all day long and, and don't even talk to us. I contrast that with a firm I'm at, I'm at now where I'm, you know, I spoke at the FPA NextGen event on Saturday. I spoke at FPA San Diego and Bogleheads earlier this year. I'm speaking to FPA Minnesota later this year. I just had my second paper in the FPA journal submitted for peer review earlier this week. Uh, I got the 40 under 40 award from investment news and it, it's because I'm in the right environment now. I'm in an environment that wants that, that I'm on the same page with in terms of my goals and, and my passions. You're wired to do research is kind of what I'm hearing is, would you agree with that? I'm, I'm afraid so. <laughs> We're all grateful for people like you. Um, so tell me what are you working on right now? You talked about a paper that you just submitted to the journal. What What's kind of interesting or intriguing you right now? I think it all comes back to finding the right answer so you can help people. Because in the end, that's that's what I want to do. If I can make some money off it, great. If not, it is what it is. But in the end, I want to find the right answer that's going to benefit people. So effectively, in my thesis, I took the work of David Swenson. He's the chief investment officer over at Yale Endow Yale's Endowment, runs $25 billion plus. Swenson's argument is, hey, if you're not Yale, stay away from all this active management stuff. Your guys aren't smart enough to do it. You're better off with low-cost investing. So I said, all right, let me test that. And that's what I tested. And it may not surprise you, but the chief investment officer over at Yale was right. Low-cost investing in the absence of the really, really, really skilled manager that, again, you don't have access to isn't, isn't going to work after fees. So Swenson makes another argument, and so does uh, Larry Swedro, which is government bonds are the only bonds that you should ever hold. Not corporate bonds, not munis not junk bonds, not bridge loans. So I tested Swenson's argument in this next paper, I compared government bonds to corporate bonds. And the reason that I want to do that is, again, I want people to have the best portfolio. I, I want them to succeed. So hopefully my work can help them with that. I can't remember the book name, but it's like getting to why, but it's, if you can figure out your why behind what you do and let that be the driver, 
everything basically, not everything, but a lot of things just figure themselves out. And what's so exciting to me about hearing you talk right now is I'm hearing your why just repeated over and over and over. You know, we, I, you want to help people get the best decision. You want to do all, you know, that that's the driver and whether that's financial planning or research, um, that's really exciting to hear. Did anybody tell you to do this research or did you just start doing it? No, uh, I just started. It's um, I like to joke in the presentation for the first paper that I wrote on dollar cost averaging that that paper was the result or, or rather I, I say that that paper started the way all research papers start. And that is that I got into a fight on Twitter. <laughs> I put a blog post up about dollar cost averaging and then Daggy, Dan Egan over at Betterment made a comment about it and effectively challenged the result. And that just spiraled into my first academic paper. Oh, that's great. And then the second paper was a function of conversations here at the firm. So I mentioned when I came on board, I had the honor of helping put together the firm's portfolios, which again is effectively what I wanted to do the day since I had written my thesis. And I got to do that here and it was amazing. And during the course of that, there was a debate over, over bonds. And that was the inspiration for the second paper. Can you tell us what the conclusion is of the bonds? Well, what did you, what did you discover? Sure. So there's been some, uh, you know, blog posts, and, you know, effectively, you know, light championing of government bonds as the superior portfolio diversifier because they have better correlation, which is effectively they move up when markets move down. And that other bonds don't necessarily do that. So I looked, I looked at the numbers and that's usually the case. Of course, there's exceptions, but... More often than not, that relationship holds true, and you can actually have pretty similar risk-return metrics using government bonds over corporates. That is, you don't lose a lot in the way of return and still have, more often than not, uh, superior uh, drawdown correlation. That is, government bonds are going to go up when corporate bonds are and the market are going down. For the portfolios that you created and are, I guess, managing right now, so do you just put government bonds? Is that the primary bond in your portfolio right now? Go government bonds are, are the primary bonds in our portfolio, correct? And do you buy them direct or do you do bond funds or how do you, how do you actually get that asset in there? Uh, we use a combination of, of low-cost fidelity funds and dimensional fund advisors, uh, bond funds. So you don't do individual bonds? We do not do individual bonds, no. Very interesting. Well, thank you for that. That's, I think, a great practical tidbit. Um, so for people who are interested in research or interested, you know, one of the things that you're saying is you, these if we really want to be serving our clients well, we have to be engaged with the research. Where would people go to start getting engaged with that research? Gosh, I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, if you're a member of the FPA, you get it mailed to your house every month. Michael Kitsis is an amazing uh, resource. He's always 
not, you know, not only creating his own academic pieces, but but citing others as well. But there's just the legends out there as well. I mean, I mean, if you haven't heard of Jack Bogle, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure what to say. You know, maybe maybe <laughs> you're uh, you're just a kid at, at the CFP program. In, in that case, that's okay. Um, but there's just there's so so much out there, which is why it blows my mind that professionals still consider active management given or, or rather it's not necessarily active management that's the issue it's cost it's it blows my mind that that professionals you know other advisors still consider high cost funds with respect to the nearly infinite amount of research that proves the opposite should be the case I always talk about this because I think it's such an important issue. And I think it's one of the issues that our generation is really going to have to face head on is this idea of industry versus profession. And not using research in your practice is what makes us an industry. Starting to incorporate research into our practice is what's going to elevate us to that professional level. And so I think just speaking in broad strokes, I mean, this is our generation's responsibility to figure out how to incorporate research into our practices. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, anecdotally, it's been my experience that the younger generation usually, there's, there are exceptions, but usually gets it. For the most part, young folks understand low-cost index funds are the way to go. And it's, it's normally, you know, the former insurance salesman turned RIA owner who's used to more of a story than academic research that champions, you know, the higher cost stuff, because it sounds interesting, right? Again, it makes, it makes a better story than using low cost funds. If you want to, you know, tell me that this guy is going to pick winners or that you yourself know how to pick winners. It's, it's certainly more interesting. It's captivating. It's, it'll definitely bring more clients on board, but it's, you're going to be doing people a disservice if that's the case. So let's talk to the young advisor who's working for one of those guys. What would you yeah. say to them right now? Gosh. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, and maybe this is sort of maybe even me talking to my, you know, younger self. The, fir the first thing I, I would say is that it's going to be okay. You don't have to work there forever. In, in due time, you'll find a place that'll be the right home for yourself. Now, maybe that means you're going to go out on your own and launch your own firm and, and do things the way you think they ought to be done. Or maybe that means finding that magical person who your views align with. But I would just add that it's, it's going to be all right. You can't expect everyone out there to understand some of the things that you do and, and, and it, it's okay. It's not permanent. And so where, I mean, are there places that you'd recommend young advisors to go to, um, to kind of get that exposure, basically that networking element of how do, where do people go to network with advisors who have this low cost, very research driven perspectives? Man, that's a great question. I think the first piece would probably be look them up and see what their deal is. You know, I can go online and I can look up portfolio solutions, and it's pretty hard to miss the fact that they're champions of low-cost investing. But I can go to another company's website, and I can see stuff about, you know, smart diversification or 
I don't know, whatever other random term they decide to make up and, and put a trademark after it and, and call it their investing, you know, philosophy. From there, you can have a pretty good idea how they invest. Is there anything else that's any big projects or anything that's really kind of just piquing your interest right now? Any big projects on the horizon or anything for you? First thing that comes to mind is I have a follow-up to the original paper that I, I put out on dollar cost averaging effectively because I got the same question over and over again, which is, can I use this, can I apply this long-term strategy uh, in the short term? And I think, I think the obvious answer is no. But I got that question so much when I was presenting the paper and, and from emails, et cetera, from other advisors who, who read it, that I think, I think someone, or I guess myself, need, needs to say that in, investing is, is a long-term game. The valuations and whatever you know, multi-year valuation use are, are going to show that. So now that I've put this other paper effectively to bed, I think I'm going to keep going with that other one. Okay. So let me, let me just make sure I'm understanding you. So people were asking, can you do that dollar cost averaging on the short term? Effectively, the paper I wrote compared a way to outperform using dollar cost averaging over a very long timeline by using market valuations, specifically uh, the CAPE ratio as an indicator. So I looked at, I looked at 15 years and again, 15 years, you can apply that to the CAPE ratio because the CAPE ratio is a long-term valuation tool. So I presented this research and I said, you know, there, there is a pattern between outperformance, i.e. making more money, and using this strategy when valuations are high, i.e. markets are expensive. And so I was asked, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to do something over 15 years. Can I do this and can I dollar cost average using the strategy in six months and, and effectively make more money? And obviously the answer is no, because again, CAPE is used to predict long-term returns. Nothing, nothing out there can predict short-term returns. Now I'm sure some, some quant is going to argue with me on, on that point. Um, but maybe I'll just add, nothing can provide excess returns after fees on the short term, on average. You know, we're talking to, you know, people who want to be planners or people who are kind of in the earlier stages of their career. What advice would you have for new planners? Yeah, I would say it's what I touched on earlier in that if you go into a job interview and they tell you you're going to do X and you get there and you end up doing Y, don't be surprised because it happens and it's all right. And it's not to say that there isn't another opportunity where you actually, you know, will be told you can do X and maybe you end up doing Z. Um, but eventually you will find a place that you can call home. And if you flounder a little on the interim, it's okay because it's just temporary. What I love about your story and especially as it relates to the research and just jumping right in is you just did it. Like you didn't wait for somebody to give you permission. You didn't wait for somebody to tell you that you should do it. You just ran and said, you know what? Gosh, dang it. This needs to happen and nobody else is going to do it. So I'm going to do it. And I think that's a very, very good model for, for new planners and how the profession really gets shaped and, and changed. Yeah. It goes back to what drives you, what's interesting to you, what are you passionate about? 
I've blocked off Saturdays for my writing and, and research day effectively, and I haven't necessarily blocked it off for, you know, anything less exciting or or interesting. Just because it's writing and research is something that I like and I enjoy, and maybe there's even some tangible benefits to it. But it's it's something I'm passionate about, so I do it. Where can people find you? Are you going to be speaking anywhere coming up where they can connect with you um, or online? Where would people who are listening to this, where can they connect with you? Gosh, uh, well, I'll, I'll be at FinCon. Um, not, not speaking. I'll be speaking at FPA Minnesota. Um, you can find me at divinefinancial.com. I also am putting the finishing touches on johnluskin.com, which will be a forum for long-winded nerdy blog posts about investing that p- perhaps aren't appropriate for an academic paper but just another venue to write and get lost in those numbers and figures that I enjoy. Oh, that's so great. Thank you for doing that. I think our profession is definitely going to be better off because of that. Yeah, I I ho- I hope so too. Maybe to add another long-term project that I am excited about. And it's probably some time coming. But with all this writing and speaking, the long-term game for me is to get in front of a group of younger planners frequently in the form of teaching a CFP course on investing so I can really drill into the kids the value of running the numbers, disconnecting the idea that there may be an investment strategy but it's not valid unless you effectively test it. And if you do test it, you'll likely come to the conclusion that costs are, are what matter. I think about my own CFP course, and my big takeaway from that is here's a different number of ways to invest, each legitimate as the one before it. And there was an absence of effectively saying, this does work after fees, this does not work after fees, this does not work after fees, here are the chances that this is going to outperform, etc. And just really drilling in to the kids that message, it's one thing to have an investing strategy, it's another thing to test it. And unless you test it, you won't actually know if you're helping people or hurting them. In the absence of wanting to do the work yourself, then just Defer to index funds, because again, there's a wealth of data on there. But if you want to, you know, pick Amazon as a stock, or if you want to, you know, time the market with your, you know, quantitative algorithm that you wrote yourself. Okay, that's an interesting idea. Now test it after fees. Does it still work? So that's what I want to challenge the young folks to consider. Thanks for joining us on this episode of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? Thank you for listening, and we will talk again next week.